Okay, Second Chronicles 20 and verse 1. Uh, why don't we stand and read as a church? Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Menuhites, came to war to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming out against you from beyond the sea. Out of Aramon, behold, they are in Hazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed the fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over the kingdoms and of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? They have lived in it and have built your sanctuary there for your name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine? We will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not in, is, um, let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mattaniah, the Levite, the sons of Asaph. And he said, Listen, halt Judah in the heavens of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Please be seated. Well, welcome back to our sermon series on prayer and evangelism. I'm going to review what we covered so far. We asked the question in Sermon 1, why pray? Why bother? Who cares? Right? God's already decided everything anyway. Not that, that's not what we learned. We learned that God uh, desires to partner with us to fulfill His kingdom, kingdom purposes. That was His uh, demonstration to us right from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of the Scriptures. Also, we learned that His Word is performative. It causes things to happen as for His will to be performed. The second, last week, we talked about what a house of prayer is. And we discussed that, and discovered that it shares in God's passion 
to see broken people restored and come to the saving grace of God. Well, today we're continuing in this theme by looking at a situation in life that we all have faced on more than one occasion and perhaps are in the midst of it right now. How does one pray when they feel absolutely helpless? When they feel that all hope is lost and they're standing in front of basically an immovable mountain. And this brings up an interesting point in partnership because a lot of times in partnership, um, like for example in friendships or marriage or whatever, sometimes it's a 50-50 deal where you both put in equal amounts of effort to come up with a solution or to solve a situation. But in this case with Jehoshaphat, what we're going to see is this. The partnership was pretty much 100% one way. <laughs> this was something that God had to solve all on his own. This is basically a reliance on the Lord 100%. And there's only a couple of things that Jehoshaphat actually did. So this was a lopsided partnership, but a partnership nonetheless. Now as you can tell by our reading this morning... Our lessons on how to pray in the midst of helplessness comes from King Jehoshaphat, the fourth king in Judah's history after the kingdom split. So let's read verse 1. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with the sons of Benuites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Before we dive into who these enemy, enemy nations were, I first want to describe to you the events that occurred prior to this. Because you notice, notice here it says, now it came about after this. So we have to discover what's the after this referring to. Well, in the previous events, uh, we know that by this time, the fact that Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, the, the Israel's been split into two. Right? It used to be 12 tribes as one nation, but now they're divided into two. In the north, there's ten tribes ruled by a king by the name of Ahab. In the south, there's two tribes, and there's the king who is Jehoshaphat. Now, the king of Judah, um, well, actually, I should just say this, that the king of Israel, I should say, Ahab, was a real piece of work. He was one of the most wicked men in, uh, in, in Israel's history, and his wife was Jezebel. And uh, Jezebel, to this day, has left her mark in history because no girl I've ever met has been named after her. <laughs> Hannah, sure. Uh, you know, Elizabeth, yes. Jezebel, no. She's left her mark in history, and that's Ahaz, Ahab's wife. She's, him and his wife were wicked, wicked people. The problem was that Jehoshaphat in the south had formed an alliance with Ahab, and agreed to go to war against an enemy nation of, of uh, Ahab. Jehoshaphat is warned by God, don't continue in this alliance, don't go to war, or else you'll be defeated. He goes anyway, and it's disastrous. Ahab loses the battle with Jehoshaphat, and he ultimately dies in that battle. Jehoshaphat was fortunate he didn't suffer uh, the loss of his life, he escaped. But God was hopping mad and angry with uh, Jehoshaphat. And he came and he, and he rebuked him. Now the cool thing about this rebuke is it actually produced what God was hoping for. Repentance. Jehoshaphat after this um, began to make major reforms in Judah. In bringing spiritual reforms to the nation. 
and ensured Judah's devotion to God from this point forward. He appointed judges, Levites, and priests to ensure justice was maintained and that people walked in obedience to the Lord. But it's interesting that right after this renewed commitment, a major test came. The sons of Ammon, the Manuites, and Moab showed up on his doorstep. Now, this is, I just thought of this, you know, it's interesting that right after a renewed commitment that a major test came. Right after a renewed commitment to the Lord, a major test came. This is a theme in the Bible, church. You know, Elijah, he defeated the prophets of Baal with the Lord's help. You couldn't get a more spiritual high. What happens after? Jezebel's after him. <laughs> and he goes running to the mountains and he goes into depression. Right after an incredible victory. The Passover. Israel's freed. Freed from, from, from slavery. What an tremendous emotional high to be walking out after 400 years. A major, major uh, excitement and, and thing. And bang, Red Sea. Pharaoh's army right there. A test. You know, this is often the life of a Christian. So again, just, just for interest's sake, just if you ever find yourself on a spiritual high in it with a renewed commitment to the Lord, don't be surprised if tests come your way right after. And this, why this is important is that we can learn from Jehoshaphat in terms of his actions when this test came. And the way he prayed, why it's so important for us, because it provides a roadmap for how to deal with tests after renewed commitments, if they come your way. So let me give you a history of the Moabs and the, and the Ammonites and the Midianites. The Moabites and the Ammonites were tribes that descended from the incestuous relationship from Lot and his daughters. The oldest daughter had a son named Moab from her father Lot, and the youngest daughter had a son named Ben-Ami, Amon, basically from, and that's how these tribes came into existence. Both, both lived on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, which is modern-day Jordan, if you were to look on a map. Um, the Meunites uh, were basically inhabitants of Mount Seir, according to our passage, uh, verse 10 and verse 22 later on. And the Mount Seir, you can't see on this map, it's the yellow, the yellow uh, kingdom below Moab. It's that yellow territory. So you can see here, they're well situated against Jerusalem, which is on the left side of the sea, in the south here. And you can see a star marking Jerusalem, the king of Judah. So these nations are, are well situated to come against Judah. And uh, one of the things here is, they were a huge army. Verse 2 describes them as vast. It says, they, they, some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea. Out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazar Temar, that is in Gedi. So, and rightly, verse 3 says, Jehoshaphat was afraid. Jehoshaphat was afraid. Well, no doubt, when you see how they come against the city of Jerusalem, you see the size of these kingdoms. There's three against one, basically. Now, why that's important, too, in terms of his fear, is that we just saw, or our previous chapter, um, Jehoshaphat has made an alliance with Ahab and gone to war against an enemy nation. He's not afraid of war. He's not a timid king. This guy will, will go for a fight. And yet in this moment, he's terrified and feels completely helpless because this is a battle beyond the normal for this guy. 
There must have been some army because he was deeply worried and felt utterly helpless to defend. So what does he do? What does he do? Well, here's the pattern for prayer when you're feeling helpless. The first thing he did is he exercised, exercised restraint and sought the Lord. He exercised self-restraint and sought the Lord in verse 3 and 4. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They came even from all the cities of Jerusalem to seek the Lord. Notice here it says, in in terms of the self-restraint, that here's a guy that once formed an alliance with a king and then inquired of God what to do, whether they should go to war or not. And then even when God said don't, he, he ignored the instruction. Here's a guy now that doesn't consult anybody in the midst of helplessness and goes straight to God. He turns his attention first to him in the midst of deep helplessness. He made God his number one focus. And fasting here is a, a further demonstration of his dependence on the Lord. Not something that God asked him to do. This is something he willfully did to seek him. This is a different Jehoshaphat than we see before. He's exercising self-restraint and not acting impulsively in this midst of crisis. He basically turned his fear into trust. He turned his fear into trust. Similar to David in Psalm 56.3 when he says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. There's a huge lesson for us here, church. Many times when we're faced with situations of desperation, we act impulsively. We act impulsively. We take the reins. We're quick to, we want to be quick to stop the bleed, to, to take action. Important, especially for those of you who are maybe uh, type A personalities. You love to get things done. You love to accomplish stuff. And you, wanna, you have all these grandiose plans and you want to carry them out. Well, what do we learn from, here, from Isaiah? He says, Woe to those who carry out plans that are not mine, declares the Lord. <laughs> Woe to those who carry out plans that are not mine. We learn here that part of our helplessness and how to approach God in situations is we have to exercise restraint in order to seek Him. Otherwise, we will run ahead of the Lord and we could potentially end up in a lot of trouble. We're talking about deep times of helplessness where we just have absolutely no answers and we do not know what to do. One other important observation in this text, church, as the leader, he didn't stand alone. He assembled the nation around himself. Did you catch that in verse 4? So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They came from all the cities... Look at verse 13. All Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. There's no nursery. (laughs) There's no babysitting. The whole families are assembled, standing there with the king. They collectively humbled themselves. You know, there might be situations in leadership, but not just for someone like myself, even your own situations in your own private lives, where there's huge issues going on, things have been going on for a long time with no breakthrough and no answers, seek the Lord in community. Seek the Lord in community. 
This king didn't have to call anybody to himself. He, he didn't act pridefully. He says, I want everyone involved in this. This is a major issue. Church, don't try to solve issues and come up with solutions in certain things on your own. Seek the community. There's wisdom in the counsel of many, according to Proverbs. Seek the community. Have, invite others to come alongside you and pray fast if you need to, together to make issues, or to solve issues, I should say. The second thing this king does is he focuses on the aspect of God's character relevant to the situation. He focuses on the aspect of God's character relevant to the situation. Look at verse 5 and 6. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of the Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. Remember Jehoshaphat's situation. He feels powerless. He feels powerless. Actually, verse 12 says that. He says, For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. He feels totally helpless. He is the ruler, but he knows God's the ultimate ruler who's going to, who can solve this issue. Look at the aspects of God's character he picks up on in these passages. He focuses on him being the ruler over all kingdoms. These people have come to rule over him and to exercise power over him. He says, you are the ruler over them and your power and might are in your hands. He focuses on the aspects of God's character that are necessary to, to solve the situation they're facing. Man, we could learn a lot from this. Let me give you three scenarios of how to apply this in your life. You're facing a situation in life where you need wisdom and understanding because you don't know what to do. How to approach a family member who's waywardly sinning. Uh, how to approach a family member that you're having a fight with. Uh, a neighbor who's repeatedly hostile. Um, a financial decision you have to make. A child that is just not going God's way and you're just panicked and whatever. And just, just name it. Just like whatever. There's just so many situations. Here's a key trait in a situation where you need wisdom. The Lord refers to himself as a wonderful, wonderful counselor in the Old Testament. A wonderful counselor. You need wisdom. Isaiah 9.6 calls him that. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Right? So when you approach the Lord, you approach him as wonderful counselor. Highlight the aspects of, of what that looks like. He's one who gives wisdom. He's one who gives understanding. He's one who's a teacher. These are the key things you can, you can uh, ask him and talk to him about in terms of his character traits. And ask him to provide those kinds of things to you because you're helpless in these areas. Scenario number two is a person in your life that you love and you care for and you're watching them sort of walk waywardly and you can tell that they're kind of floundering and need guidance and direction and, and they, they even feel a little bit abandoned and lost. Well, what's a key attribute of God in that situation? He's the shepherd. He's a good shepherd. 
He's a God who cares. He leads. He guides. He protects. Psalm 23, 1-3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Listen to the words there with shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores me. He guides me. Your prayer is like, Lord, I have no idea what to do, but you're the good shepherd, Lord. This person I'm talking to you about right now, you know, like, you know, Michelle or, you know, you know, Andrew, you know, they're lost, Lord. They need guidance. They need to be restored. Make them lie down, Lord, and see your goodness. That you're a God who cares and is there to lead and protect. How about scenario number three? You're, you're witnessing relationships broken one after another, either within your own family or another. It's just, you're just watching your family go from one heartbreak to another, and people making bad decisions after bad decisions, and there's just pain and bitterness and resentment, and the, and the bonds of sin are, are huge. People are mastered by sin and can't seem to get out of it. What's a key trait in a situation like that of God, character-wise? He's a redeemer. He's a redeemer. He seeks to gain possession of that which was lost. Often in redemption, the, the key words are brought out. Deliverance is one of the key words as a redeemer. Deuteronomy 7, 8. Because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from a house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Lord, these people are in bondage. It's been year, generational sin after generational sin. Or I've watched my daughter, my son, my mom, my dad, whoever, just go from one bad decision after another, Lord. It seems insurmountable. It seems undeliverable. God, but you're the, the, the God that brought Israel out of slavery. You brought them out and you redeemed that which is lost. You focus on the attribute of God's character that fits the situation. This, of course, is going to require study from you on God's character, isn't it? You're going to have to learn the attributes of the Lord and the titles He uses for Himself in Scripture. If you need help, you know I'm always there for you to discover those truths. I have work to do myself in these areas as well, but I can walk beside you. The third thing He does in this prayer is He remembers God's past relevant works. He remembers God's past relevant works. Verses 7 to 11. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? They have lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine? Will we stand before this house and before you? For your name is in this house and cry to you in our distress and you will hear and deliver us. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land, as they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us up from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. O our God, will you not judge them? What Jehoshaphat is referring to here in past works is God's faithfulness in giving Israel the very land that the Ammonites have come to take away from them. And he's saying, 
God, you're a God of covenant. You're a God of promise. You gave us this land. He's going back 600 years in terms of past relevant works, church. I did the math from when Canaan, uh, Canaan, when um, Moses, oh yeah, when they took Canaan and Moses was promised the land all the way to Jehoshaphat's reign. It's 600 years. He's going back 600 years, not six weeks, to thank God for his promises. It doesn't make sense to him. He says, look at all the you and yours in 7 to 11. If you circle all those, there's tons of them. He says, your sanctuary, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land? This is your possession. This is your sanctuary. It doesn't make sense for Jehoshaphat that God would then go to all this effort to give them the the land and to give them this rightful place of, of worship and then take it away from them. And here's the thing. Yeah, he did that when they were unfaithful with Babylon and stuff. But right now, Israel, Judah, I should say, is walking in obedience to God. Judah, Jehoshaphat has made spiritual reforms and the Lord is pleased. The, and, and, when, uh, and he even said, like, if, as long as you walk in obedience to me, I will protect your borders. That's a promise in Exodus. He's banking on God's past works and reminding him of this in his prayer. You know, as humans, we have short-term memory when it comes to God's faithfulness to us. When crisis hits, as Christians, we have spiritual amnesia when it comes to God's goodness. Right? Come on, let's be honest. I'm guilty. God convicts me first. When crisis hits, do you ever think of how good God's been to you and rehearse those things? Or do you start panicking and freaking out about the current situation and that overcomes all the things He's done for you? You know, I have a friend of mine that uh, I was talking to recently who was going through a real helpless situation. They had been great parents their whole lives. Um, I would consider model parents. I I would like to walk in their footsteps in terms of the way they raised their kids. Really sought uh, the Lord and how they would do things and his principles from Proverbs and different things. Their children have grown up and always been committed and they've been raised how to date and all those type of things. And uh, one of their kids was old enough now to start pursuing relationships on their own without mom and dad's consent. At first, this, uh, this new uh, partner to, to one of their kids seemed attractive and in the right way, like not just physically, but just was a good person of character. Over time, this person started to show flaws narcissism and all sorts of selfish behaviors and start to control their, their, their child. Well, not a child. This person was now like a grown-up out of the home. But you, when you're a parent, your child's always your child, even if they're 30 years old, right? Or 21 or whatever their age is. You care for them no matter how old they are. The parents, though, knew that they couldn't step in and say, don't do this anymore because that's a, that's a recipe for a closed door. That's a recipe for a closed door. They were absolutely helpless because they could see the disaster and their, and their, their kid couldn't see it quite yet. What did they do in their prayer? They told me this. They said, we would just get on our knees like crazy before God and we would remind Him of all the goodness of His past promises from Proverbs and all the things that He promises for children if we go His way. 
and we're thanking God for how crazy his parenting system is and how important it is to, to, uh, you know, to, to do these things. And we're reminding him of the things that we had done in his name that did produce for fruit in, in, uh, in our kids' lives. And we banked in those things to have our kid wake up out of the situation. Over a few weeks or whatever it was, or months, eventually the kid saw the light and basically ditched this person. It was really cool because these parents realized that they were helpless, but they banked on the promises of God and his past works and how flawless his parenting ways were going forward. An application of this prayer. Fourth, what else we should do in their prayer lives? Well, it should come as no surprise that one of the attributes in praying a prayer of helplessness is to admit you're helpless. <laughs> Verse 12, Jehoshaphat admitted his helplessness before God. Read it. Our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You know, you'd think it'd be obvious that in the midst of helplessness, you admit you're helpless. <laughs> it's not that easy, is it? Come on, our tendency is what? To be prideful. To think we can solve things on our own. To admit that we have all the answers. Humility is not a naturally... Uh, uh, quality that we all seem to possess at times. But Jehoshaphat recognized apart from God, there were no answers. He was powerless. He was at a total loss and he was at total dependence on him. This is not a sign of weakness. According to the Lord, this is a sign of wisdom. <laughs> Listen to Proverbs 28:26. Those who trust in themselves are fools, but those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. In the Proverbs, wisdom is, is attributed to God being the source. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on, on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him and He will make your path straight. This is super important, church. We have to come to a place where do we do admit our helplessness. But you know what I learned in this prayer? I'm going to summarize this entire prayer in one sentence. Do you know what he did? Do you know what Jehoshaphat did? He prayed the situation, not the solution. He prayed the situation, not the solution. Do you have any, see anything in these verses of a solution? God, I'm going to, I've got an idea. I'm going to do what they did in Jericho. Or I'm going to do what they did, you know, I'm going to bank on the Red Sea or whatever. Or I'm going to form an alliance with the king of, this, of the, the, you know, king of you know, whoever and, and go off and fight war with these guys. Nothing. The whole thing is a, is a giant admittance of all four attributes. From exercising self-restraint to focusing on his character to remembering his past works admitting his helplessness, he is praying the situation. He is not coming up with solutions on his own. Sometimes we come to God with all the answers and solutions and then ask him to bless which one. So I've got A, I got this, I got this, I got this. Which one do you want to bless, Lord? And the reality is, none of them are what God wants you to do. 
None, none of them are even his best. So you don't know what to do about leaving people leaving the church, or you don't know what to do about, do about declining finances, or you don't know what to do to bridge the gap with your neighbor, or a child in a difficult season, or more evangelism within the community, or whatever. And so we come up with all these solutions and say, Lord, which one do you want to bless? And he says, you know what? None of those were my best. I got, a, I got an answer, actually, you could not see coming that is the right solution to this. It's best to pray the situation in the time of helplessness and wait for God to bring clarity. Because it could be totally different than what you could even imagine or expect. Now we're going to look right away here at the kind of unexpected answer that God gave. Something that Jehoshaphat could never make up in his wildest dreams. But I want to do leave you with one other thing to think about in praying a prayer of helplessness. This is not in Chronicles. This is me speaking to you from other passages and that from, as having wisdom, or I shouldn't say, not my own wisdom, but, well, wisdom from the Lord in terms of one key area. Sometimes our situations in life of our helplessness is because we have created them. Sometimes. So what we want to do to add one more piece to this is check for personal culpability. Before you ask for deliverance, check for personal culpability personal guilt and responsibility. A lot of times we want God to rescue us from situations that we're the cause of, but fail to recognize that we've done something wrong and for why we're in trouble. Proverbs 131 says that if you don't go God's way with wisdom, you'll eat the fruit of your own way. He's not talking to just unbelievers, he's talking to believers too. Principles of life, and I know that I've done that even in my own Christian walk. So here's a step I would recommend you take. Before, as a part of this. It's in Psalm 139. This is David. He says, You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Then he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there's any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. This is the King of Israel the number one jack daddy in authority and power. God says in the scriptures, you're a man after my own heart. And David has the, the wherewithal and the understanding to say, you put me in this position, Lord, but I might, have be, I might be doing and thinking some things right now that are outside of uh, my understanding that I'm unaware of. But he believes that God can search him and reveal things to him that he doesn't even know about himself. He takes the time in this psalm to ask the Lord to reveal those things to him. Sometimes when we do this, we don't get answers. Sometimes like, we, don't, we can't or clearly understand or hear. Well, what do you do in a situation like that? Well, Proverbs 15, 22 says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Sometimes it's wise to go to others and say, you know what? I don't know what it is, but I keep running into these same situations. Can you see anything in my life that is uh, causing me to keep falling into these struggles? You talk about humility, but sometimes that's needed. Sometimes that's needed where we, you know, ask others around you if, if you keep running into the same patterns of problems. There's wisdom in the counsel of many. 
Plans fail for lack of counsel. Anyway, that's just a side, side note. But here's the thing. If you, if you ask the Lord to search you and He reveals things to you, or you ask friends and they reveal things to you, the great thing about God is He's one who absolutely loves you. And if you confess your sin, He is faithful to forgive. Jehoshaphat, remember what he did? He formed an alliance with the most, one of the most Israel's wicked kings, with his most wicked wife, lost the battle, ignored God's prophets, repented, went and made spiritual reforms in the nation, and wait till you see how God answers him. But the key is he repented. He took ownership for what he did wrong as this leader of church. So even if you're personally culpable, the Lord is forgiving, but you have to humble yourselves before him. So let's look at this answer. How did God solve this problem for Jehoshaphat? <laughs> let's look at uh, verse 14. Now, in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, the Levite, the sons of Asaph. And he said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and King Jehoshaphat says to the Lord, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up, up, up on the mount of ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. Now, let's add a couple of verses here. Look at 20. They rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. Look at 22. When they began singing and praising the Lord, they set, um, when they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had came up against Judah, so they were rooted. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, which were the Midianites, destroying them completely. <laughs> And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped destroy one another. <laughs> There's a lot in here, church. This section alone deserves its own sermon. 14 to, but I just, from 14 to 22 here, 23, deserves its own sermon. But I'm just going to summarize a couple points here. First is the key here. The victory and answer to prayer came in ways that were completely unfathomable and unexpected to the people, to Jehoshaphat. First of all, there's, there was probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people gathered. Remember, all from the cities of Judah, um, from Jerusalem. The, the, the Judah assembled in Jerusalem for prayer. Just thousands of people. And how does God answer? Through one person. One Jehaziel. The word of the Spirit empowers this guy. A word of the Lord comes to him, and one man has the answer. God gives one guy out of thousands the answer. <laughs> now, you won't see this. I didn't see this until further study. But what's cool about this guy is this. You'll notice here how he's identified. His lineage is given up to four generations the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Matmeah, the Levite. Do you know in First and Second Chronicles, many people are identified by their generations. Only twice are, does it go past the original father to the grandfather. 
Here it goes back four generations. So only two times in Chronicles is a, as a person listed by two generations, Jehaziel is listed by four. Only time in the whole books of Chronicles. Why? Well, I don't exactly know why. But somehow, this is to ensure that we know this guy's credible. It's got to be. Come, like, this has to, maybe it's something to do with the credibility. Four generations back of giving you who this guy is from, where this guy's from. Second, the victory is gained without lifting a finger in battle. The typical way to win a war is to go head to head. They did not lift a finger, church. Verse 15, the battle is yours, not God's. Verse 17, you will not fight this battle. In 22 and 23, they turned on one another. They came to Judah united, walking in probably arrays of fronts. Next thing you know, they're fighting one another. God caused confusion in the camp. That's not a way you win a war. That's never the way you win a war. You go hand to hand in combat. The Lord provided an answer that was unfathomable and unthinkable to the human brain. Number three. Even though this was the Lord's battle, they still had to face their fear. In verse 16, church, even though Jehaziel told them they were the enemy nation would be, which would be up in the mount, uh, the ascent of Ziz, he said, some, he said prior to this something extremely important at the beginning. Look at verse 16. He says, tomorrow go down against them. The battle is yours, not yours to fight, it's God's. But tomorrow, wake up in the morning and go down and face them. But the battle is God's, but you do something. They gained victory without lifting a finger in the traditional sense, but they still had to face their fear. They had to go approach the enemy and to fight. We are facing times of helplessness, not just as a province and as a nation in the world, but even probably personally in our own families and different situations. May this prayer be a blessing to you in terms of how to move forward with the Lord when you are absolutely up against the wall and have no hope and have nowhere to turn. The Lord wants to answer the cry of His people when they recognize their helplessness before them. The Lord wants to answer the cry of His people when they recognize their helplessness before Him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him and He will make your paths straight. This is a unique way to partner with God.